Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm Derek Van Riper here today with Michael Beller. It is Friday, May 22nd. As we do most Fridays, we have a great guest for you. Today we're joined by Nick Pollock. He is the CEO, president, and founder of the Pitcher List. You probably follow him on Twitter already, at Pitcher List. If you don't follow him, I don't know what you're doing. Make sure you go do that. Uh, Nick, how's it going for you today? What is happening? Uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to be here. I'm stoked to be here, as I mentioned before, uh, with the two deepest voices in the industry on one podcast. So uh, I'm going to try my best to keep up with it, but I know I can't. And I'm just stoked to be here. I'm fired up for next weekend because uh, about a week from today, starting next Thursday, you've put together an online conference called PitchCon. And the promotional video went around <laughs> yesterday so i appreciate the effort that you and your team put into that video that was awesome it got me really hyped up for the event but uh, before we get started just you know talking baseball tell our listeners what PitchCon is all about sure uh well first of all huge shout out to josh sperry who pretty much did that entire video uh working with me on that like he did such an incredible job and to have you as iron man that was that was one of the highlights uh, for me <laughs> in that video definitely uh, but yeah, PitchCon is a four-day online baseball conference. It's completely free. Uh, it's from Thursday, May 28th to Sunday, uh, May 31st, 10 hours a day. Uh, we have presentations and panels from 65 people in the industry, ranging from sitting down with Ian Osaris and Rob Freeman pitching Ninja to talking to John Boy, Jason Benetti of the Chicago White Sox, uh, the announcer. I'm, we're going to talk to him and just kind of hear his story. And just so many amazing presentations. I mean, DVR, I'm stoked for yours. Uh, I don't know if you want me to give the uh, the presentation title now or hold on to that, but I'm excited. I'm just stoked that you are presenting in the first place. And uh, yeah, it, it's just going to be an amazing weekend. We're raising money for Feeding America. 50% of all the contributions uh, go to Feeding America, which is great. And we also have dozens of prizes that we're giving away, uh, which is completely free. You don't need to contribute to win a prize. It's just going on at the same time as the conference. So I uh, we're just really stoked for it should be a fantastic weekend talking about baseball. Yeah, it's going to be great. Looking really looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, feel free to share uh, details about any of the presentations uh, as as you see fit. <laughs> but uh, uh, definitely looking forward to being a part of that next weekend. Uh, let's just start talking pitching. I mean, you are pitcher list after all. So I think that, that's true. an appropriate thing to do. We did talk pitching <laughs> with pitching ninja uh, earlier this uh, draft season as well. But you know, looking at the top 100, uh, you have had a few players as big gainers because of the shortened season, and some of these guys were problematic as we were thinking about things back in February and the early part of March. And that's a group that includes Lance McCullers, Shohei Otani, Jesus Lazardo, and Julio Urias were probably the first two guys that people were shooting up boards uh, as mm-hmm. things started to slow down. Uh, Charlie Morton, Cole Hamels, some of the other names on there. Uh, so... McCullers in particular was a guy that I know you had mentioned as a problematic player. I was listening to Sleeper in the Bust, probably on my way to first pitch Florida. And the point you made then was that in a full season, we just didn't really know how the Astros were going to manipulate his innings to keep his workload down. Right Now that concern is pretty much gone, isn't it? Yeah, it's... Uh, so there's a term, hipsters, right? I. Uh, um, headache-inducing pitchers that stifle the entire roster, where <laughs> you don't know, like you get them and say, great, I'm going to get 120 or 130 innings out of Lance McCullers, then you realize, wait, I from a roster spot, I need more than that for the entire year, because it's not like Lance McCullers was going to go four months and then just stop. Like It was going to be throughout the entire season like Swiss cheese almost. And that's just not something I want as an owner. Now, of course, all that is thrown out the window because everyone is getting whatever inning limits. All that stuff is just gone effectively. Obviously, there is some some IPS question that is innings per start. Uh, but nevertheless, all these guys, I mean, pretty much everyone that you mentioned there, McCullers, Uzardo, Urias, are all going up draft boards because they don't have those capped ceilings. Um, the most interesting one there, though, I think is someone that I don't know if I actually like a lot, but I feel should get more recognition, and that's Cole Hamels. I mean, Cole Hamels was, uh, for his standard 12-teamers, um, just pretty much not drafted because he had this shoulder injury, and there was just no reason to go and chase him. But now, in a shortened season, uh, he's a good win candidate. He's kind of what I call a Toby, where it's just this middling pitcher that will do all right all the time. 
but he's also got some strikeout upside. I mean, he's had multiple seasons of 23% K rates. Actually, every season of the last five or six outside of one, he's had at least a 23% strikeout rate, along with a 12% swing strike rate along that way. So it's legitimate strikeout upside. And across his last uh, 10 seasons, he's had one ERA above 3.85. And there's something to be said about that stability, especially for deeper leagues. I think we're not really given a whole lot of consideration to Cole Hamels. We think, oh, it's just kind of a worse Dallas Keuchel almost. And I don't know. I I think he should be a little bit more in the conversation. 12-teamers, I think he should be owned across the board, really. Uh, Quality start leagues, too. I mean, yeah, they're going to try and get everything they can out of Hamels in Atlanta. So... I think he's someone that should get a little bit more love than he is right now. Yeah, really interesting uh, tenure that he had in Chicago when he was good. He was very good, and uh, I, I agree with you that knowing that he's going to be fully healthy coming into uh, this season when it begins, if it begins, someone who uh, is still not getting a ton of attention and likely isn't going to get really a lot of attention if we're starting the year in July. He's uh, going to be a target of mine in the drafts and auctions that uh, uh, my leagues were able to put off back when everything shut down. He's definitely an interesting one. One of the most interesting players in the league is another guy that you have listed here, and that is Shohei Otani. Uh, This is a guy who is going to be different depending on where you play your fantasy leagues. Of course, some some, uh, commissioner systems treat him as one player, both the pitcher and the hitter. Some separate him out where you can get Shohei Otani the pitcher, Shohei Otani the hitter. Um, I think he's a little bit easier to figure in leagues where he's two players, but in leagues where he's one player, are you more or less interested in him versus leagues where he he's two guys? Right. I So my colleague Scott Chu, um, I think he took him at 15th overall in our uh, wow. uh, staff mock when he was one player. I mean, he makes a really good case about saying this is a top 50 player on both sides, and you can even say for pitching that he could easily be a top 25 arm in a shortened season too. Uh, so there's something to be said there about it. And I guess I'm in also for the fun factor. I mean, it's fantasy yes. baseball and it's just like, you want that kind of guy. You want like the fun, exciting thing uh, about Shohei Itani, the the pitcher. I mean, cause him as a batter, actually, I don't think people realize just how good he was in 106 games, 18 home runs and 12 stolen bases, 386 average with a 352 Woba. I mean, that's good. That, that's easily a util spot uh, for leagues. Um, as a pitcher, though, it's kind of crazy to me. His fastball was legitimately terrible. I mean, really, really bad in 52 innings. It's You have to do a lot of bad things to earn a negative 4 P-Val in just 52 innings and 400 thrown. It's like it's an accumulation stat. So it, it, to do that much damage in such a short period of time is crazy. He had a 382 average and an OPS over 1,000, but this is this is with a 97 mile per hour pitch. And actually, I was talking to some people, and they were saying that Shohei Otani was tipping. Uh, it was kind of the whispers around the league that everyone knew that Shohei was uh, tipping his heater. So I, I imagine that he's going to be better than he was uh, in that short sample size in 2018 as a pitcher. And he had a 331 ERA with a 30% strikeout rate and a 116 WHIP. I mean, this is to me a fantastic pitcher who then you also get benefits when he's not even starting. That, that to me, is someone I want across the board. Now, where I would actually put him in my overall is another question, but, I mean, I could hear cases from, like, Scott Chu making that argument at 15. I, I see it. I don't know if I would necessarily go for it, but I, I imagine that I would be higher than the consensus, consensus on going after Shohei Otani, the one player. It is pretty amazing if you look at, just what he's accomplished as a hitter and you use you know a WRC plus leaderboard for the two years that he's spent in the big leagues. Otani has a 136 WRC plus. That's the same as George Springer, same as Jose Altuve. They'd be tied for 19th among hitters with at least 500 plate appearances during that span. And I don't think anyone's ever really getting that excited about just what he does as a hitter because of what he can also do as a pitcher. Really interesting thing. I didn't know about the the pitch tipping being a, a reason or potential reason for the struggles with the fastball because it never struck me as a pitch that, I mean, especially with the velocity it has, it didn't strike me as a pitch that he was struggling to command or a pitch that didn't have enough movement, right? It didn't, to me, look right. like, a, like a straight fastball that should just get blasted uh, anytime he's in the zone with it either. So it uh, seems pretty correctable at this point. The other guy that I mentioned up top, Charlie Morton, I haven't seen him really pop up as a, a riser in the shortened season, but 
is this because of past injuries? I mean, I know he was healthy and extremely uh, efficient for the Rays last year, but he has a pretty scary injury history when you start looking back at all the, the major ailments he's dealt with over the years. Yeah, I actually find myself pushing Morden slightly up. Like, I have it as Jack Flaherty at 9, Corbin at 10, and Morgan at 11, and I find myself saying, you know what, I think I want to have Morden at 11, or sorry, at 9 there. I uh, Because he was so... Okay, I love seeing a guy that says, hey, I'm pretty good. I think I can be better, and then he is better. And Morden did that by increasing his curveball usage uh, tenfold last year to 37% from 29%. And that's a super effective pitch. I mean, all of a sudden we saw him gain a full tick and swing strike rate to 13% overall, which is fantastic. 304, uh, 305 ERA, 108 whip for Morden in 2019. In the shortened season, I, I, it took me a while to come to a conclusion here because you can make two cases about injury-prone guys in shortened seasons. You could say, one, uh, they have less time to get injured, so that means I'm in on them. Or you could say, well, if they're injury-prone and then they get hurt, the time that they miss is more significant so then I'm out on them. And I'm going with the former there. I'm saying, you know what? There's less time for him to get hurt. I'm going to take my chances on it. Because actually when Morning got injured, it was more uh, by the end of the year. Uh, it was by August or September. That's when he would start to to run out of fuel. And then his body just couldn't take it. Shortened season, I think he can survive through 80 games or so. So I, I find myself liking Charlie, Charlie Morton. Yeah, and I think that's a good point and a good way to think about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the important point with Morton, too, is that we're also talking about a huge payoff if you're getting him for whatever a full season is. Uh, we're talking about a, a true, legitimate, real-life and fantasy ace, and that's uh, not necessarily going to be true of all the injury-prone players. So Morton, uh, another guy where I agree with you, I am in on him for sure. Uh, there is one guy here that I'm going to move us on to that I think we maybe disagree on a little bit. Uh, in that top 100 column, you say that you are, uh, quote, stalling on Kyle Hendricks a little bit this year. Uh, why is that? Yeah, it's, uh, to be completely honest, um, before we were saying uh, a lot about, you know, fantasy baseball and we want it to be fun. And I have Kyle Hendricks around, like, the moment of all the fun pitchers. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, I have him at 46 right now, but there's Urias, there's Freed, there's Weaver, there's Heaney, there's McCullers, there's Musgrove, there's Manaya. I mean, I just think I want to chase that. That's just so much more Kyle fun. Kyle Hendricks screams fun. You get me? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just not the kind of guy that I just think, oh man, I am marking my calendar. Kyle Hendricks is going today because I want to see him paint 86 on the corner. <laughs> it's just not the thing that I, it gets me the, you know, the massive joy of the sport. At the same time, I think his value is there, right? It's constantly low ERAs. 346 was the highest he's had in four seasons. Uh, 113 whip last year is very good. It's just not enough, and it's a capped ceiling there, too, because it's only a 20.5% strikeout rate last year. I don't really think that's going to go up. That was actually his highest swing strike rate of his career at 10.3%. I think it's only going to go down, if not up, and there are a lot of these comparisons between, say, Mike Soroka and Kyle Hendricks, and I just I think it's just a way of them intersecting at a certain moment in time, and less so of like actually going to be a parallel uh, through their career. It just happens to be happenstance that we're talking about them both right now. Uh, so Kyle Hendricks, I, I think if you're drafting him, say, as a top 40 starter, you need him to be exactly the same or really be at that ceiling as opposed to other guys which have a larger range. Because you can only kind of go down at the current value for Hendricks. That's why I pushed them down to about mid-40s or so. I'm really curious, too. You brought up Soroka and Hendricks and how they're compared. I mean, I think people in the fantasy community just do it because of the low strikeout rates and, and the good ratios. But just mm-hmm. age to level, the things that Mike Soroka accomplished in the minors and in his first you know, two seasons in the big leagues, really just one full season and a partial 2018 it's very impressive, and I think that gets overlooked. I think people just lose sight of the fact that we're still talking about a guy who is only 22 years old when we talk about Mike Soroka. Yeah, he's. I love him so much. <laughs> like I, 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 I'm so impressed by his knowledge of the game. He thinks like a veteran already. His command is elite. It's really remarkable. How I remember his first game against the Mets. I did a gift breakdown of it, and I remember in a bat against his Drupal Cabrera, where he showcased three different types of fastballs. Not two, not your typical four seamer, then a sinker or a two seamer. Actually, 
three distinctly variations of those. So it was a fastball that had some cut action coming in, and then a sinker that went straight down, and then he struck out his Drupal on a two-seamer that was fully lateral going away. And you can actually see his Drupal swing underneath the heater, thinking that it's going to sink like the previous one and actually stayed up longer. And you just don't see that at all. So last year, you have a 111 whip in a uh, 20% K rate, and you think, okay, this guy's a pitch to contact kind of guy. He's going to avoid the barrel, and that's it. But then you realize, wait, his slider can be better. His changeup can be better. They both are pitches that seem to be on the development side. He's 22. I can easily see a season with Soroka going 25% K rate. Like, this, this to me seems like it's just a year or two away um, at most, really. So, I, I, I just see so much development, so much growth from Soroka, and I'm so excited about him, but I don't know if it's going to be this year or next, so it has me a little bit questioning if I should go after him, but man, I'm stoked. I can't wait to watch him. Well, we've hit on Cole Hamels. We've hit on Mike Soroka. Let's turn this into a mini Atlanta Braves show and hit on <laughs> uh, Max Freed as well. Now, this one, uh, another guy that uh, you're down on relative to the industry. It seems like you still think he's going to be a good guy and, and worthwhile, but your ranking of him certainly is a little bit lower than the in- industry consensus. So what risks do you see associated with him going into this year? So there was a lot of talk about uh, Brandon Woodruff as a possible Nick Pavetta. If you guys remember February and March, which is so long ago so long at this ago. point, um, when we actually thought baseball was happening. Um, and I started realizing, wait, I think the true comp here, if we're really going to say anyone is 2020's uh, Nick Pavetta, which is essentially to me is like a young arm who had a not so great season, but we think is about to break out and is valued around the 35 to 45 starting pitcher. That would be Max Fried, who had a 402 ERA and a 133 whip last year with a 25% K rate. And I hate, I know that a lot of people hate me saying that. And I understand why. Cause I, I mean, I like Fried more than I did Pavetta last year, even though I did like Pavetta. I, the main concern is that he doesn't have excellent fastball and curveball command. He actually had this tumultuous season where at first fastball and curveball were killing it. He was throwing fastballs up and then curveballs down and guys were getting whiffs and it, it was really nice and beautiful. And then he kind of lost his curveball, but he introduced a really good slider is actually uh, what I call a money pitch. That is, it had over a 15% swing strike rate, uh, over 40% uh, zone rate and over 40% O swing, which is fantastic. He also just introduced this and it was great. But then his curveball and his fastball weren't on par, and it kind of had you know four ERA and a 133 WHIP. And I don't really think that Max Free can put it all together for a full season yet. I think we're going to see a month or two of him just sporadically through the year that are just fantastic. We're like, he's here. This is it, and then it's going to go away. And I don't see a full-on breakout uh, where I need to say, Max Free was my guy. I'm so happy I got that because he was able to pull off a 3-4 ERA through the full year. I see him hovering like the 3-8, 3, or maybe even 4-plus ERA with a tough whip. It's not going to be a sub-120 whip. I think anyone expecting that is just expecting way too much out of Max Freed. So it's there are some tools here, uh, but I need to see more with that heater and curveball before I can really latch on. I'd look at the spread of projections for players that people get really excited about, and Freed is absolutely one of them. I look at the Fangraphs uh, pages, and I see the differences, you know, from Steamer to ATC to Zips to the bat. And if the bat is an outlier on a player in one direction or another, that always kind of stands out to me. Because I think Derek Hmm. Cardi's system is one of the best projection systems out there. I think it's taking in some inputs that a lot of the other systems simply aren't accounting for. And it's interesting that Freed is one of those guys where he's he's a major outlier in the bats projection for him compared to everything else. And um, I, I would agree with you that you know, the flaws that he has are legitimate flaws that aren't necessarily going to go away quickly. And it might be plenty of strikeouts. It might be a slightly better ERA than last season, but I would be surprised if Max Fried ever becomes an asset in whip. I think that is the one category that will always be a problem for him. I think that's a great way of putting it. Uh, he had a 9.45 hit per nine last year, which might come down if his BABIP of 336 comes down too. But we've seen in the past, guys that have high BABIPs don't necessarily always follow it up with better BABIPs. 
you know, like Noah Syndergaard's pretty much always a 300 plus BABIP guy in my head until he makes some sort of massive change with what he does. So yeah, I think the way you put it, the flaws aren't going to go away. I think that's a really good way of doing it. Yeah, something I don't like about him, and this is uh, this is a, a bias I have um, when it comes to left-handed pitchers or a certain brand of left-handed pitchers, and I've always meant to do a little bit more digging on it, and just for one reason or another, haven't uh, done that. But I want my uh, I want my lefties to have a changeup, uh, just something that goes away from righty, something that keeps a, a righty a little bit more honest. And uh, I, I'm always a little bit wary of lefties who who don't throw a changeup, even if it's just a show pitch. It's something that I want them to have. Mm-hmm in their arsenal and obviously it's something we haven't seen from Max Freed in in abundance so uh, it's a pitch I would love to see him uh, develop to the point where he can at least show it to righties and, and keep them a little bit honest um, let, let's move to the other end of the rankings here you've got Walker Bueller in a one-man tier uh, he's behind <laughs> yeah. Garrett Cole Jacob DeGrom Max Scherzer Justin Verlander totally understandable and then ahead of uh, your tier three which is Shane Bieber Mike Clevenger and Steven Strasburg so yeah, we don't need you to uh, tell us why Walker Bueller's great. I think we all understand why Walker Bueller is great. But if I told you that uh, three months from now, not only did we have a baseball season, but uh, Bueller joined one of those groups, he either pitched his way into what you would say is tier one or slipped a little bit and fell into tier three, which would you bet on it being? Man, I go back and forth here. I, I guess I would say it would slip into tier three just because he doesn't have the overwhelming swinging strike rates of tier one. It's that simple. I mean, normally, when with a guy like Bueller who actually focuses more so on heaters than your filthy secondary stuff, you generally do see a higher strikeout rate relative to swing strike rate. Uh, but nevertheless, um, he's going to be great. I, I love the fact that he has three secondary pitches that he throws for strikes. And he has a fantastic heater that just overpowers guys all the time. But he doesn't have the just, I don't know, the absolute filth of Verlander, Scherzer, DeGrom, and Cole. And that I don't think is going to change this year. The one thing that I think made people go after Bueller a lot, and I was definitely in on this as well earlier on, which I, I put a heavier weight this season on guys that I think could theoretically go 200 or more. And because you have all these young pitchers that are exciting and great, but you know, organizations are holding them back. They're saying, we don't want them to go over 180 or 160 or whatever. Putting a lot more of a preference for those that can actually push 180, go 190, 200. Walker Buehler was one of them. Now in a shortened season, that value goes down a little bit. It's not as uh, important. And I don't really see him as a 35% strikeout guy. Like he had 29% last year, 20% in 2018. It was volume that was pushing him up. But you need to have that volume and a close to 35% strikeout, or at least the possibility to do that to be in that first tier. So I think he's going to be closer in that third tier than the first. There were a few uh, top-end pitchers, even a couple aces that were dealing with injuries uh, as things stopped. Justin Verlander, uh, Mike Clevenger had knee surgery back in February. Blake Snell has had some arm injuries and dropped that pedestal on his foot last season, so he's had some weird stuff and some scarier arm stuff. Uh, but these are all guys that have had the the benefit of, of rest in this uh, the shutdown period. You've got Verlander at SP4, Clevenger at 7, and Snell's down at 17, so he's the last pitcher in your fourth tier. With Snell in particular, does that ranking reflect more than just an injury tax? That's a great question. I... Yes and no. <laughs> like, I mean, okay, the injury tax still needs to be there. And I found myself saying, I don't want to deal with guys that have any sort of cloud over them as we enter the season. And there obviously is one with Snell. Like, he had the injection, but it's not, it's on the inside of the elbow, not the outside, which is a good thing. But nevertheless, I still wonder, is he okay? I mean, generally, here injections, that's a temporary measure and not something that's just, oh, I got an injection now that's never going to pop up again. So that still gives me some hesitation, but it was, it's really weird. I think of all pitchers between 2018, 2019, Snell has one of the weirdest stories because you go from a 189 year rate to a 429, but you have a better swing strike rate. I mean, seriously, one of the most elite swing strike rates I've ever seen of a starting pitcher before. It's 17.7%. Garrett Cole wasn't close to 17 I mean, he just far and away was the leader in the majors of swing strike rate. And then Snell also had a better strikeout rate, of course, at 33%. 
And you also had this massive over 100 point gap in Babbitt from 241, which we knew wasn't sustainable in 2018, to, but to 343, which again, we don't think is sustainable. And also you have that left on base rate, 17 points different from 88 to 71.5. I mean, it's just so different. But it also comes from his actual pitches. His slider and his curveball were dramatically different. And the main way was zone rates. The thing that really propelled Blake Snell in 2018 was that he was able to throw both his curveball and his uh, slider for strikes. 36% zone rate on his slider in 2018 and 33% on his curveball. Curveball went down to 26% and his slider went down 13 points to under 24% zone rate on that slider. That's huge. That forces him to throw more fastballs in the zone, which is then going to increase your Babbitt because guys then are going to get better contact. That's why you see a whip jump of 30 points from 97 to 127 in 2019. So to me, maybe that was an injury that caused him to not have the feel for his curveball and slider, but this does speak to feel, right? Like he was really in the zone in 2018 with those pitches, being able to throw them for strikes, and it just made him unstoppable. But then we also saw what happens when he isn't in rhythm. And that was pretty bad. I mean, 429 ERA and a 127 whip, that's not nearly what we paid for him. That was the top 10 pitcher going into 2019. So to have an expression of failure to get into rhythm is more of a cause of concern. And if I'm paying for a top of the line, if I'm paying for a starter in the first 40 picks or so, I don't want to be thinking about his floor and that might be detrimental to me. So that's why I have Snell as far as I do down to 17. It's a mix of that injury risk and, of course, that the floor is, I think, lower than a lot of people are giving him credit. The point about the breaking balls being able to be thrown for strikes is such a good one because those pitches can't just be chase pitches because major league hitters are going to figure that out sooner rather than later, and you need to be able to command those for strikes to be able to keep those guys honest. I think it's a really important point that it's not – just purely about the nastiness of the stuff, but the command is just so key, and you have to be able to put those in the zone and force them to swing at it, and that's going to you know, lead you to some of those chases. So I think it's a really good point and something to watch with Snell and with a lot of pitchers. And you know, this Tampa Bay team as a whole is really fascinating to me this season. I would have loved to have seen them play with this roster across a full season. I will still be very intrigued to watch them over the 82-game season that we are now all hoping we get. I mean, there are a few teams in the majors where Blake Snell might legitimately be the third best starter on his own team, but that could definitely be the case Hmm. with Charlie Morton and Tyler Glasnow sharing that rotation with him. I love Tyler Glasnow, and I'm using this to transition to a guy that you love apparently more than Tyler Glasnow, that being (laughs) Zach Gallen. You've got him at SP22 on your rankings, ahead of Sonny Gray, ahead of Tyler Glasnow, certainly higher than most people in our industry here. So why are you buying what would all of us would agree would be a breakout season if Zach Gallen is pushing the top 20 starting pitchers this year? Zach Gallon is so great. I love Zach Gallon. <laughs> Clearly. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> it's just, okay, he has four pitches that are all, for the most part, commanded really well. There is one that is a little more questionable than the others, and that's his cutter, um, which is, well, it's weird. It is a slider, but he has to think in his head that it's a cutter for it to act like a slider. Um, so it's so it's weird. Whatever, call it whatever you want. But that pitch is a feel one. Where there are certain times when he's in on it and he's not. But the best part is when you have four pitches and your slider isn't working. Okay, cool. I can just throw my curveball more often. And that's what he does with an exceptional changeup. I mean, this is a really, really phenomenal changeup that he just throws all the time. I think in his debut when he came up and, and pitched against the, the Cardinals, the thing that impressed me most was he threw two outs, bases empty against Goldschmidt. Uh, he told me about this. It was 3-2 and he threw a changeup under the zone as Goldschmidt was just waiting the entire bat for another fastball and he swung over it and I asked him about this and he said well two outs base is empty I'm I'm feeling you know what I'll go after him and attack because I feel like I can get Marcel Ozuna after who is Ozuna and that's a very good hitter and that's the mentality that that Gallon has it's like I think I can beat him on my changeup I'm not going to beat around the bush I'm going to go for that and it's a 21% swing strike rate on that changeup last year 45% O swing like ridiculously good WRC plus allowed of 35 it's a fantastic pitch. And then his fastball, well, he's actually going more north-south now. And especially with his mechanics, too, he's very good at, uh, he's not slinging across the body at all. 
I mean, he is slightly with his step, but as far as his arm action, it actually comes down to the ball very effectively, which allows him to use the top of the zone well. And he was saying that going from Miami to Arizona, that the Diamondbacks, they have someone working with you, Dan Heron, who just says, yeah, okay, we're going to make a blueprint just for you. And they have him working north-south, which is just so perfect for what he does. Um, I really think that he legitimately has a completely well-rounded repertoire that is going to keep his floor high. I know the the 11% walk rate is scaring people away. I think that comes down uh, dramatically. We saw it with Clevenger, for example. I mean, once he hit the bigs and got comfortable, he went from like a 12% to an 8% walk rate. I think we can see that from Gallon. I think the 13% swing strike rate is here to stay. If not, it could theoretically be even higher. And uh, a 281 ERA, he's not going to do that. But he can probably do like a 3-3 ERA. Then all of a sudden, you think, wait a second. This is a guy that has a ton of innings already on, uh, ready to go. I mean, he had last year... 170. So it's not like he was going to be limited anyway. I, I love this. I think he's just well-rounded. and He's going to be just a productive starter for you through the year. He's another one of those guys where the, the distribution of the projections and the ERA is a little, a little bit wider than you'd expect. Like Zips has him down at 362. The bat has him at 429. I think the systems are somewhat reasonably close together, I guess, with the whip. But I think projections can be misleading sometimes. And that walk rate just looks like an outlier when you go level right. by level and see what he did. And maybe this is the the pitcher equivalent of something I've been talking a lot on Rates and Barrels uh, with Eno Saris about, where you have hitters come through the minors and they've got a 20% K rate. They hit the big leagues and they strike out 30% of the time, like Keston Hira was one of the guys that kind of mm-hmm. led me down that path. And you know maybe when you have great command and you have as many pitches as Gallon does, maybe your baseline walk rates in the minors are a little bit lower than what they're going to be when you get to the big leagues, but it just seems like he has enough of an idea of what he wants to do and enough weapons to accomplish it to bring that down. Like I think there are times where you have to look through the projections, and it seems like, especially from your perspective as someone who watches everyone so closely and can analyze the game that way, I think being able to trust your judgment as almost a scout really is the right way to go here. I mean, that sounds lovely. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> but so here's, so here's the thing though. So the, it's, this is a, like a broader premise that I've been bouncing around in my head too, is like we all, most of the people in this fantasy community are playing with the same projections. And we're looking at the same metrics, different stat cast things. And we've decided that certain things are really important and we build values off these projections and we all kind of play the same way and there are blind spots when we do that and if everybody has similar blind spots the way you get an advantage is having something that's tactically different and what you do your approach to pitching is tactically different so you know, I remember in the triple crown auctions you weren't spending up on pitching you you hardly ever spend up on pitching because your strength is finding mid-tier and late pitchers who are going to exceed value in any given year. Well, we'll see if that actually works out in that Triple Crown League. Uh, but um, but yeah, I, I do feel that there is something to be said. Um, I think anyone will tell you that, okay, these are the numbers, but there's so much more going on about how they got there. You know, a good example here even, uh, I think Gallon's 11% walk rate is being propelled by two starts where he allowed 11 walks total. Um, and then if you look at the numbers, like over half of them are two walks or fewer. I mean, but dramatically so. Uh, and I think that's just kind of, all right, he has a bad day or so, and that's not really what it's going to be for the long haul. Well, normally you see a guy that with like 10%, 11% walk rates, it's a lot of threes and fours just like every single day. And that's not really the kind of guy that Gallon is. I mean, he had about a 5% walk rate in 2019 in the minors before coming up. So I really don't believe that that's the, the guy here. And uh, I, f- I think the, the the first pitch Florida presentation um, I gave, which was about CSW, right, calls strikes plus whiffs, but also really how do you like, assess just a given start? Um, and I have something called the real method that I decided I was going to like do a small article on. And then I realized, like, nah, I'll make like the stupid longest article I've ever written, which is my quarantine project. Um, just about everything I think about when watching a pitcher. And there's something to be said about saying, hey, what is he trying to do? What can he do? And did he do it? Is this something that is legitimate? Is he going to do it often, right? And I I really do think there's so much to be said about that. Because a guy that has, I mean, Philip Humber threw a perfect game. 
You know, yeah. it, like this is what happens in baseball as guys do this. But if you watch that, I mean, I, I think my favorite thing about that perfect game is the final pitch. It's such like a, a perfect example of that moment because it's a three two check swing in the dirt. Like, was that really a perfect game? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that's how we all felt while watching. It was so like towing the line of like this shouldn't happen. But things did. And that's if you take that approach with every single pitcher, like, okay, you watch Jack Flaherty in that second half last year. You watch his starts. He deserved it. I mean, the way that he pitched, he deserved it. Now, is he going to deserve it through a full 2020 season? That's a very good question. But at the same time, going through it, yes, he deserved that success. That wasn't massive luck. That wasn't uh, him just, you know, one random day. No, he deserved pretty much all 16 of those starts or whatever it was. So there's something to be said about actually watching the game because anyone, I think, really truly watching it will understand this innately. The fun part is just figuring out what is this exactly that is making us feel this way. All right, well, you talk about uh, exceeding value and finding pitchers who are going to exceed value. I don't know if anyone did that better in 2019 than Shane Bieber, and we're always on the outlook for a guy who can be that version of a pitcher. If there is someone who's going to do that in 2020, who would you put your money on? Oh, man. Uh, So Shane Bieber, his blueprint essentially was, I can throw strikes, but I don't actually have a good third pitch to get with lefties. And he had this sub-15% swing strike rate curveball in 2018 that all of a sudden became like a 20% plus swing strike rate pitch in 2019. And he got a ton of whiffs under the zone with both a slider and curveball and two looks, which is really important because it, it can be a slider, but then you think out of the hand, like, oh, that's not a slider. This is going to be a strike now. And then it's not as a curveball. That's huge. Um, he also did a really good job of changing where his uh, fastball was. The lefties getting a little bit more down instead of as elevated as it was in 2018. But essentially, if you take that saying, all right, a fastball that he commands well around like 94, 95, um, one good swing strike rate pitch, and then another one that could be better than it currently is. Um, to be as literal as possible, fastball, slider, curveball. There are two guys that first came to mind. Originally, it was Griffin Canning, which is so sad that he's going through all these injury uh, questions because I really think that he is the blueprint of Shane Bieber. But I can't really be sewing on him because all these, you know, that 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 haze. So the one that I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that I love so much. It's, it's really both of these Pirates guys, but Mitch Keller has exactly this. He has a really good fastball that got burned so much with Babbitt last year. Hey, Shane Bieber, 2018. Uh, a really, really good slider that gets so many swings off of the zone. And then a curveball that should be better. And I think that curveball is going to grow a bit, especially with this new Pittsburgh uh, analytics team. There's also Joe Musgrove there, who, if you want to talk about command of a heater, like he is really good at that. Uh, and then a higher emphasis on sliders and curveballs. Actually, a, a decent change, too. He has three pitches that get significant whiffs in that changeup slider curveball. Uh, I've been waiting for, I, I mean, when this whole quarantine thing, if you want to talk about the guys I was most excited about, it's pretty much both of these. I was so amped to watch Mus- Musgrove and Keller just to see how this was going to go because I really do think that they can't take that next level. So, yeah, I'll say that in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think uh, a change in approach with the pitching there, it, it was kind of overlooked at the time. I know it was something you and Alex Fast, you guys were talking about that back at First Pitch Florida like 14 years ago when we were all uh, hanging out watching <laughs> spring training games. And, you know, it's one of those things where you, you kind of get a clean slate for a lot of guys. I, just thinking about what you said about Gallon going from Miami to Arizona and, and just having a totally different game plan that unlocked some things for, for different guys that – it was there all along, and maybe it was part of the reason why we were so frustrated and confused by why they weren't getting results before. Now, with that game plan, they could get there. Uh, let's talk about a few toss-ups. Now, we know where these guys are in your rankings, but some of these players are really close together. And um, The first toss-up we have is Jack Flaherty versus Patrick Corbin for this season. And I was surprised that you kind of warmed up to Flaherty. He wasn't a guy who was necessarily locked into your top 10 as the process of putting your rankings for the season together started up yeah Flaherty is I mean again I was saying before like the 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 rhythm that he got in was just obviously so incredible and it's why people are are pushing him up a good amount and I I can't say no necessarily because versus Corbin Corbin is really good he and he's sturdy 
but I don't know how much I can buy him being like truly elite through a full year. 118 whip last year, 325 ERA for Corbin, 28.5% K rate. And it's really two pitches. You know, it's that fastball and, of course, that unbelievably good slider. I mean, we're talking 25% plus swing strike rate on it. It is unbelievably good. Um, and I just feel that the ceiling is a little bit lower with Corbin, especially in a shortened season where 200 innings, well, that doesn't really matter like it did before. With Flaherty, I think the the element that is so interesting to me about him is that we talk about that slider being fantastic, but really the hero of that uh, of that those those two months or really three months, I uh, was both his fastballs. His four seamer performed super well, but his sinker and this is a pitch he threw about ten percent of the time earned a near ten p val, which is again a crazy accumulation stat. It's just an expression of how effective that pitch was and guys were expecting the heater and all of a sudden this sinker that would go inside and had an over 30% O swing exactly what you want to see in a sinker normally like an average one would have like a 22% but if you have the uh the approach of throwing a two seamer that's or a sinker that starts on the inside corner and then goes off the plate and you get guys actually hacking at that I mean that's a, a true sign of an effective sinker and Flaherty was doing this so well uh last year and I wonder if that's going to stick around because if that does I mean, what is his floor is my big question. Is, are you going to say it's the first half of last year? Well, that was really, he had a lot of bad luck in it. Yes, he wasn't in the same rhythm, but he, you know, he wasn't, I feel like he was fine then. But the, obviously the ceiling, I mean, he's had a sub-115 whip in both seasons, 2018 and 2019, including that first half. Of course, that was not that great for Flaherty. So I, I, I it's really close for me. Obviously, they're back-to-back, but... I'm going to give a slight tick for Flaherty just because I think he has a little bit more tools in the in the toolbox, and I think we're giving him credit. Yeah, I, I like that too, and I like betting on um, a guy who has the pedigree that he has, already has the track record of Major League success that he has, age 24 season. Let's uh, maybe believe uh, in a little bit of what might be unseen from a guy with those sorts of uh, those sorts of stats at his back. I really like the uh, narrative of this one. Uh, a couple of aces, or at least aces on their own team, maybe we'll see if they're aces for real the way we talk about it this year, on opposite sides of the same city. You Darvish versus Lucas Giolito. I mean, how can you not love G? Uh, sorry, uh, Darvish. He's yeah. the best. <laughs> He's so good. He's. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked if Darvish is the number five starter this year. Wow. I. Uh, I, well, I mean, the, what, how he transitioned, he essentially fixed his fastball. And then the end of the year, I mean, his last three games were 14, 13, and 12 strikeouts, uh, respectively. Like, that's that's crazy. And he still has this unbelievable cutter that he can just throw any time for a strike. And, oh, yeah, a stupid good slider that has way more movement than any pitch ever should. It, it's, it, it's just crazy to me how effective he is and efficient. I mean, he walked uh, about... 10 batters across his last three months. I mean, boy, that you don't see that. I I really think that you Darvish has figured it out when it comes to his heaters throwing harder doing so. He was also throwing gas in spring training too. I uh, and having that fastball back, well then all of a sudden now your your, uh, your home run rates go down because you can actually put the heater where you want and then actually set up batters the right way instead of just here's a heater, go and knock it out of the park or so. Uh, so I, I'm leading the Darvish side, not to mention Lucas Giolito. Yeah, we're all excited about him. Awesome. It still wasn't like a 270 array or something. It was a 3.41, and he also had this really hot April and May, really May. And then it slowed down a bit um, over the next four months or so. Yeah, it was really it was good, and then he had like a little bump in the road, and that kind of made a 4-4 ERA in those uh, final four months. But, but Giolito, to me... I had an overperforming changeup, and the slider isn't where it needs to be right now. I mean, the, the changeup had a 57% zone rate or something stupid like that. Yeah, 52.5% zone rate with a 22% swing strike rate. That is not a sustainable thing uh, at all to me. And that's the main reason for Giolito's success because his slider was fine, but it wasn't exceptional. It wasn't this ridiculous pitch. Um, didn't hit a 40% O swing, did not hit a 40% zone rate. So it's, I, I think that we are expecting too much out of Giolito while Darvish just doesn't get credit for just how much he brings to the table. It's almost like we're still dinging Darvish too much for the 40 
injury-soaked innings we saw in 2018 where you know nothing mm. was working and the walk rate was through the roof. And look back at 2016 and 2017, those numbers look an awful lot like 2019 plus that second-half walk rate like you mentioned. I, I didn't think Darvish, of all people, had that in him, but um, I was really blown away by what he put together during those last three months. How about Zach Wheeler versus Zach Grinky? Maybe two Zachs going in opposite directions at this stage of their careers. Yeah, I had a, I had a fun time making the list because I had three Zachs in a row. <laughs> um, Zach Wheeler, Grinky, Gallon. It was like, I can't interrupt this. I don't care about rankings if I'm right. I just want to have the Zach attack. <laughs> no, I... With, with Wheeler and, and Granky, um, it's a very big question about ceiling versus floor. What do you need? I think with a shortened season, the emphasis on Granky is a little bit lower. Again, the 200-plus innings that he's had pretty much every season the last uh, six years, save for one when he got hurt, is something to be said on a winning ball club like the Astros. Now, there is some degradation that's coming. There is obviously ageism, but nevertheless, I mean, his strikeout rates are falling a bit. Uh, he had the lowest swing strike rate he's had over the past six years, actually seven years last season, which is not good if you're Granky at a 23% uh, strikeout rate. He's still going to have a high IPS. The Astros are going to let him go as long as he can in a game. So there is something to be said about that. But if anything, Granky is going to go down and not up. While Zach Wheeler, I really, I, I, I say this a lot. I think the best thing that Syndergaard could do is just get out of uh, New York. And Wheeler is out of New York. It's the same thing. Where I don't think that his repertoire was being used as well as it can be. Um, he has actually a profile that matches a lot of Garrett Cole, and my colleague Michael Ajeta had a fantastic article about Wheeler this offseason, talking about the comparisons between the two. It's a really good heater that can miss bats, and he has a slider that he just hasn't really been putting in the right place so far. And I do think that you give him Real Muto, who is a fantastic battery mate. Say whatever you want about his actual framing, but the way that he guides pitchers is actually it, it's phenomenal. And you go from... Uh, Wilson Ramos, who essentially said, uh, like, hey, we need you to frame pitches better. He's like, I don't know. I've been doing this for so long. So fine. I'll do it for like a game or two. And he had like the most pass balls he's ever had in his career. Then they stopped doing that. And it's just like, oh, man, like uh, if you watch, I remember when he was on the Nationals, too, the way that he catches a ball. uh, I'm so sorry, Ramos. uh, But as a pitcher, all I ever wanted I want to throw a pitch and then the catcher sticks it and it's just this moment where like you lock eyes and you're like yeah that was a great pitch wasn't it oh so you hear that pop and everything when when Ramos would catch like the dopest Strasburg changeup, he would drop his wrist down as he caught it and he would just like catch it and whatever like as if like you're playing catch with like your 10 year old son or something like that you know like whatever okay cool let me throw it back to you now and it's just like, Ramos, come on, man. Like, wasn't that great? I need that. Tell me it was great. You know, sh- do everything you can to make this pitch as great as it can be. And Real Muto is the guy. It is like the pinnacle of just every catcher that you want behind the plate. So I really do feel that Zach Wheeler going to the Phillies is going to extract extract all the potential that we want out of him. And I'm I'm really excited for this. I think he's someone that people are saying, oh, with a 331 ERA was the outlier and 396 yeah sure that's probably what it'll be and 126 would maybe a little bit better nah nah, this is i really think the moment that wheeler becomes something massive just like it was from cole going from the pirates to the astros get around to pitch and catch it on your way back to the zone wilson it's really really (laughs) not that hard and not that much to ask right Uh, it kills me it kills me uh we talked a little bit about mike soroka i want to bring him back for this probably know where you're going with this one but Mike Soroka versus Jose Barrios. Yeah, Barrios, okay. I think I have them, yeah, them back-to-back, 33 and 34. Um, I want to say Soroka because it's more fun, and there's just, a, I think, uh, a more exciting development path ahead. Uh, Barrios, I think people give him too much credit. He's had zero seasons under a 365 ERA, zero seasons under, well, having a 110 whip or better. Uh, he hasn't had a strikeout rate of 26% plus. I don't see what Barrios does to improve. There's a talk about him. It was kind of weird. He was saying that he's going to add a curveball. I guess he doesn't call his curveball a curveball. I guess he calls it a slider, which is mind-boggling to me. Um, but essentially, he's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm messing around with a curveball, which I assume is just going to be a slower version of that slurvy uh, breaking ball that he has now, which is 81 mile per hour pitch. 
Um, but his changeup never really got into that feel. And there are certain times that that curveball was fantastic. But I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that that curveball, 12% swing strike rate last year. 12%. That is not good. That is easily below average. The best he's ever had with it is only 16%. And we're talking like Corbin, who has an excellent slider, and that's the reason why we love him so much. That's over 25% or so. Boyd slider, 20%. Uh, you need to have this elite secondary pitch, and Barrios doesn't have it. Now, four-seamer's great. Four-seamer is just an effective pitch, but it's not elite. It's hovering around a 10% swing strike rate, and it does good things, but he doesn't have that thing that's going to put him over the hump, and I don't think that a new pitch is suddenly just going to do that for him. So Barrios is just kind of boring to me. And I'd much rather go after Soroka. I'm looking at Barrios. I think part of my continued faith that he can go up one more level is just the organization. Uh, There was also some report that his velo for the fastball was up a bit this spring, trying to fix that breaking ball uh, problem, which is weird that he doesn't even call it what it is, which... Doesn't that kind of yeah, highlight I, I, some of the problem? <laughs> the pitch doesn't have. I don't. Yeah, I don't understand a clear definition, a clear role for what he's trying to do with it. Uh, but that's that's where my faith comes from. I think at this point with Barrios, I'm probably expecting too much. Uh, last toss up, Joe Musgrove, who I know you like a lot, and Sean Manaya. I mean, I have to go Musgrove. It is surprisingly close. Uh, I feel like. I go back and forth on Manaya, which I feel the entire industry does too, because we don't really know what to make of it, right? It was five starts last year, 30 innings, which is not a sample you want to trust. But he also struck out a lot of guys all of a sudden. He had a 12% swing strike rate, which was the highest of his career. Uh, after being a 20% K rate guy, it was 27.5 in that very, very hyper bad <laughs> uh, sample size. I mean, we're talking 194 Babbitt, which isn't going to stick. But then again, it was a 247 in 2018. And maybe this is a guy that uh, does a really good job of commanding that that heater and change up and slider to actually induce a lot of poor contact. He's also a slinger. And I talk about this a little bit where in general, slingers are not my favorite kind of pitchers to trust because it's harder to uh, to get the timing right. Uh, of when you're releasing the ball if you're throwing completely cross body with your arm like he has a very low arm angle and that means that you're timing it when you go left to right which is harder to do if you go north to south uh on release so that kind of i mean if you watch a sean Manaya start you'll see that he just throws fastballs in the zone i mean it's not it's not like a pinpointed on the black often when he's cruising, obviously, against the Red Sox, as he was in 2018, he was actually hitting those spots effectively. But it's not a guy that I watch and think, okay, he just completely debilitated that batter. He just overwhelmed him. And it makes me a little hesitant uh, to to jump on it. Not to mention there is a significant injury history here, too. But he, he's a relatively high floor in my head as well. So I like Sean Manaya. I just think... Everything that Musgrove brings to the table and the the clear opportunity for growth makes me siding Musgrove here. Yeah, I, I think with Manaya, I am also wary of that small uh, number of innings from last year to pretty ugly injury history and just kind of one of those guys that I've been steering around. I can always find somebody else who I like a bit better who's available when he's near the top of the queue uh, in the draft room. Nick, great stuff. We appreciate the time today. Lots of great insight with you. Always a blast catching up with you as well. And uh, we're looking forward to PitchCon next week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. You guys are the best. Give Nick a follow. I'm sure you're following him already at PitcherList. Be sure to check out PitchCon. Go to PitcherList.com for all the details on that. That is going to do it for today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, Go to theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast for 40% off a subscription. For Michael Beller and Nick Pollock, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns next week. Have a great weekend.